centuries ago, there was a young, brash young man by the name of Inigo, and he had a dream. His aspiration was very simple. He wanted to be a military man. He wanted to be one of the greatest military men that has ever lived or been known, and he wanted uh, to, through, uh, through that journey, eventually become a courtier in the palace of the king, perhaps go into politics or something. Uh, something that would uh, enable him to be in influence in front of people, and he would typically walk around town with uh, his hair down and his fancy chain mail and all of his greatest clothes, walking with an air uh, of arrogance and and, uh, the lack of humility. And he was very sure of himself, and he was young and he was brash. He was considered a womanizer, uh, but also a guy with a uh, a really hot temper. Uh, He would get arrested on occasion uh, for late-night brash uh, uh, fights in the park and and such, and uh, would eventually find himself uh, in war, as was his aspiration was to be a great great man of war. And it was during the War of Pamplona in 1521 that a cannonball hit him in the thigh and shattered his leg and his aspirations of being a great somebody, being a great military man, being also a great politician. In the course of a single moment, he was rendered hopeless, his dreams crushed, and everything that he thought was about to happen, what was supposed to happen, what he was looking forward to, rendered insignificant. These are not uncommon stories. We have stories just like them, where we wake up in the morning thinking that life is going to uh, turn out the way that we wanted, thinking that this year is going to turn out the way that we wanted, thinking that this week will turn out the way that we wanted. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. This entire chapter in Luke chapter 8 has been stories of displays of God's power. Those types of things that if you're a Christian, they're the things that you want to see and you hope to expect. And we see them, and sometimes we don't. And perhaps you've been at this church for a number of weeks or maybe a couple months and you've been going through Luke chapter 8 with me, with us, seeing the power of God's word doing its thing in the right kind of soil, bringing dead hearts to life, ejecting demonic principalities from uh, human hosts, uh, healing the sick and watching them recover. And over and over we see these tales, these accounts, these historical accounts of Jesus doing his thing coming to preach the good news and watching those who are in bondage being brought to life in a pathway of freedom in in Christ. And then we run into Jairus. And Jairus is, I would imagine, I could almost imagine, he's in the same type of spot. He's heard the tales of Jesus. He's heard the things that Jesus is able to do, the things that he's able to accomplish, and his 12-year-old daughter is sick and on the verge of dying, but no problem. Jesus has run into this before, and he can deal with it. He's heard of the healings. He's heard of the displays of Jesus' power, and this is a perfect opportunity. And so Jairus, with all of his privilege, with all of his social clout, with his standing in society, organizes that Jesus would come to his house, paves the road, sends an entourage and some messengers, and Jesus is on the way. Everything is going according to J. Iris's plan, which is Jesus will come, he'll do this thing, everything will fall into place, and I can continue on with my life with a healed daughter. 
The problem is, Jesus runs into another woman, as we saw last week. A woman with an issue of blood, the hemorrhage. And because of this woman's act of faith, that intentional, small act of faith to reach out and grab the fringe of Jesus' garment, it changes the whole course of his day. And Jesus doesn't just heal the woman, but he actually pauses to bring out the faith inside of her in him. The problem with that is that in that time, as we saw in this text, that Jesus took that detour, Jairus' daughter dies. How many times have we in this room spelled out for ourselves the plan for our lives, only for a detour to unwittingly exert itself into our lives? Sometimes the unexpected happens. Sometimes we're like, I've got a plan for my life and it's going to be awesome and God, if you bless it, it's going to be great. I've got the five-year plan. I'm going to get up this morning. I'm going to go to church. Things are going to be awesome. I'm going to get filled up and then Monday this is going to happen and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and then Thursday and we chart out what a good life is going to be like and then the unexpected happens. For Jairus, it was his daughter dying or on the deathbed. And it was Jesus not making it in the time allotted. What is it for you? Now, it's not really fair as we read the story because we know how the story ends, right? There's no love lost here. We know that at the end of the story, Jesus is going to raise this girl from the dead as he often does. But they didn't know that. Just like you don't know always what's going to happen in your story. Just like when unexpected things happen in this particular chapter of your story, you have no idea how it's going to turn out. And so for a moment, I want to transport you into the world of Jairus. Not as we see the story ending. We'll get there. I want you to transport yourself into the living room of Jairus as he's experiencing it now. His daughter is sick. He knows Jesus is healing, can heal her. But something unexpected happens Jesus doesn't show up in the way that he thought, and she dies. In that little spot in the living room is a feeling that perhaps many of us in this room have encountered at some point in our lives, are encountering now, or will encounter at some point, the feeling that hope is far off, that what should have been right here is no longer there, and even though there's people in stories like this, like the woman with the hemorrhage, who can at least reach out and grab the fringe, even if it's a tremendous act of faith. There's some of us in this room, perhaps, who are saying, I can't even reach the fringe. You're going through stuff in life that is difficult, disillusioning, discouraging, maybe even humiliating, and you're reading these tales of victory and triumph, wondering why you feel the disconnect why that person got healed. And this lady reached out and grabbed the fringe and it worked just instantaneously. And you're sitting there wondering, I, I, don't, I don't even know where his fringe is. I can't see Jesus. I can't feel Jesus. I don't know where he is. I don't hear him. I don't even know what the fringe is. That small act of faith, I don't know where it is. I'm in darkness. Perhaps you resonate with Luke chapter 8, verse 49, when the response after his daughter died was, don't trouble the teacher anymore. It's too late. And lies like that from the devil can wreak havoc, 
not just on our minds, but on our hearts. Don't bother Jesus anymore. You're too late. And can send us on a spiral, right, of ways that we typically try to handle life when hope seems lost. What do you do when hope seems like it's far from you? There might be a number of behaviors and actions and things that we do, depending on who you are and what you're most prone to do. For some of you, it might be self-medication in some form. It might be substances like alcohol or drugs. It might be Netflix binging. It might be some way of drowning out the outside world. For others, it might just be work. When life gets hard, you just immediately go back to work. You work hard, you work longer, and that activity and productivity kind of just drowns out the suffering that is actually still there. For others, it's just activities of any kind. It doesn't have to be work, it's just stuff. You might be an adrenaline junkie. Maybe when life gets hard, you're just like, let's go bungee jumping. Or let's just drive way too fast. Let's just do stuff. Let's just go somewhere. Maybe it's people. Maybe when life gets hard, you just surround yourself with people. But not for the sake of like deep spiritual community, but just noise. And those fleeting feelings that provide for you the endorphins that you need to get through that moment in the day. For others, maybe it's prayer. Maybe when things get hard, you pray. But maybe things right now are so difficult, you don't even know what to pray anymore. Maybe the things that you have gone through or are going through now are so monumental that words escape you in describing what you need. Maybe you don't even know what you need. And I want to direct your attention, as we always do, to the words of Jesus who not only speaks this to Jairus, but, to, but speaks it directly into your situation. Whether you're going through it right now, you've been through it, or you're about to go through it and you don't even know it. But have you noticed that Jesus, even though what I just described are things that we do, Jesus always seems to address the heart. It's not that he doesn't care about actions and behaviors and practices. We're going to end the sermon with a practice that we're all going to do together. It's not that he doesn't care about actions. It's that he always wants to get the cart in the right place behind the horse. And so he starts with the heart. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the body, the mouth, speaks. And so he's always trying to recalibrate the heart. And he does that in this passage. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And therein you see the problem. That sense of hopelessness eventually will have an effect on your inner life, on your heart, on the deepest part of who you are. That's why Jesus gives us two choices for how to respond when things feel like they're hopeless. The first choice is you can fear or you can believe. In fact, he says don't fear. But that's the first choice. In Luke chapter 8, verse 50. In choice number one, we're, we're presented with what is commonly humanity's reaction to hopeless situations, and that's to be afraid, to fear. Now, fear, as we've spoken a number of times in uh, sermons about the emotions, which we very much care about, which is a deep part of who you are, can take a variety of different levels. Fear can be incredibly intense and berserk. It can be like terror that grips your heart and your soul and even your body. Or it can be very subtle. It can be anxiety. 
apprehension. And so Jesus' invitation not to fear but instead to believe stems out of this knowledge that we see in the Proverbs that fear left undealt with can wreak havoc on your spiritual life and your heart. Fear left festering can give way to things like cynicism, which we're about to see in this text. You know what cynicism is? Cynicism is a defensive maneuver of the body. It is a defensive maneuver of your, your heart and soul to protect yourself from the things that you fear. It is the way that we put up walls to protect us from getting hurt again, from situations, but not just situations, from people and even God. Cynicism is our way of offering our heart the promise of protection. If we just shut people out, maybe they won't hurt us anymore. If I just shut, out my, my, uh, uh, shut myself off from the life that I'm, I'm experiencing right now, maybe, maybe I won't, maybe I won't uh, be disappointed anymore. If I harden my heart, maybe it won't get, maybe it won't get stabbed. Where you see cynicism show up in Luke chapter 8. Look at verse 53. After Jesus says, she's not really dead, she's just sleeping, it says they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Already we see this trajectory where fear starts to morph into cynicism, where they're not even looking for Jesus to do a great work. They have already brushed him off, hardened their heart to his words, and are now mocking him. This is the natural course of fear. Fear left festering will eventually turn into cynicism, which is you saying, I don't trust myself with anybody else or anything else. I'm going to shut myself off, jaded and callous to the world around me. The problem with that is our cynicism cannot just affect our own lives and other people, but God himself. And this is that point where you find yourself, where God might be doing something in your midst, right in front of you, even in the difficulty and the pain and the suffering, and you do not see it. Why? Cynicism. You're cynical. The pain has plunged you into fear, anxiety, and worry, and over time you have slowly started to callous your heart, not just to situations, but to God, to the effect that you can't even hear Him anymore when He's speaking into the situation. And they laughed at Him, knowing she was dead. Go home. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. The uh, late American poet, Maya Angelou, in one of her writings, was describing her courage uh, in the face of fear. And for those of you who don't know, she, uh, Maya Angelou, from the time she was a teenager, had been through a lot of uh, unimaginable suffering and horror. Everything from sexual assault to uh, the racism of the Jim Crow era. And she wrote a book speaking to people that would go through the same things that she was going through. And in her writing, she writes, there's nothing quite so tragic as a young cynic because it means that that person has gone from knowing nothing to believing nothing. You see that switch? Going from knowing nothing, being ignorant, to simply not wanting to believe anymore. This is the hop from fear to cynicism and the reason why Jesus says, do not fear anymore, only believe. See, the solution 
to those seasons of darkness and hopelessness for us is not just to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and feel better. Pretend like nothing's wrong. Put a smile on your face. Let's play some more happy, clappy songs. Pretend like it's not really happening. God never says that. The solution in the scriptures is not to pretend like situations aren't bad, nor to try to summon up the willpower to get through it by yourself, but to look in a different place than we were. Luke chapter 8, verse 52, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Faith causes us to see things differently. It causes us to see things differently than we were seeing them. Faith causes us to see things the way that Jesus sees them, of whom it is spoken in Romans, that he who calls things that are not as though they were. Faith changes our perspective. And look, here's the reality. She is dead. We know that because they laughed. Why? Luke tells us because she was dead. (laughs) But here's the thing. She wasn't dead to Jesus. She was just sleeping. I don't know what this girl's name was, but just for the purpose of the sermon, I want to name her Hope. The crowd in the living room, perhaps even her parents included, thought that Hope was dead. But to Jesus, Hope is always just waiting to be activated. Hope is simply lying latent, waiting for for the Messiah to come along and breathe life into its lungs. What do you do when, when hope falls asleep? You wait for Jesus to come into the darkness and breathe life into your hopeless situation. Often the things that we think are dead are simply waiting for Jesus to breathe life into. There's a situation in somebody's life today that appears to you to be dead hopeless, worth giving up on. There's a situation in your life that you want to give up. You want to bury it. You want to shelve it. You want to put it away and never see it again because you think it is only a source of pain and turmoil and waste of your life when maybe it isn't dead. Maybe it just looks dead to you. Maybe Jesus, to Jesus, it's simply lying dormant. Latent, waiting to be brought back to life. I'm talking about somebody's marriage today. I'm talking about somebody's singleness today. I'm talking about somebody's challenge uh, that that they can't seem to get over, an obstacle in your life today. I'm talking about somebody's chronic suffering today. I'm talking about somebody's illness, maybe even chronic and terminal illness today. I'm talking to somebody who's going through something right now that is so broken they want to give up on it and they think it's dead. And it might be dead to you, but to Jesus, it's just asleep. Remember that detour that we just read at the beginning in verse 43 through 48? Don't escape the fact that Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter before she died. And he took a detour. He met another urgent need. And Jesus isn't stupid. He's the Son of God. He knows everything. He knew what was going to happen before it happened. But he took the detour. We have to remember things like this. 
we have to remember that there will be detours in our life, meaning situations in our life that did not go the way that we thought they would go. Situations in our life where we are losing control. Situations where it feels like the ground is falling right out from under us. And we will be tempted in that moment to think, God has abandoned me. He hasn't abandoned you. He's just taken a detour. Just like when the disciples were pushed off in the boat by Jesus into the Galilee where they would encounter a storm while Jesus kind of walked the other way. Detour. And the storms hit their boat and they were threatening to capsize and they thought they were going to die and Jesus walks up to them in the water, on the water, and says, ye of little faith, I'm right here. There will be times in your life where you are given a detour. There will even be times that God will bring you through a dead season, a dry season, a painful season. And who really knows why? I don't know if this is your experience, but for me, in those seasons that I've gone through, I rarely get the answers to the questions that I'm asking God. I rarely get the answers to my why questions until after the fact. I rarely understand some of the things that God does in my life until I'm on the other side of what he did in my life and I can look back and be like, oh, yeah, thank you for that. But in the moment, it just feels dark. It feels dead. It feels discouraging. And who knows why he's doing the things that he's doing in the midst of what we're going through, but this we can be sure. The same Christ who is raised from the dead dwells in our mortal bodies. And the same spirit who raised him from the dead can give life to our bodies, even as we trust in Christ. And he will do a good work in you, but don't give up. Jesus' second option is better than the first. He says one option, the common one, is to to fear. The uh, choice number two is to believe. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered Jairus, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Our only task ahead of us is when those seasons come where we hit a wall of despair, when we hit a wall of suffering, when it seems like the light in our spirituality goes out and we can't make sense of anything and we are losing hope. The one thing Jesus says is to believe in him. Now, believing is one of those words that we can mess up really easy. We can equate it to simply knowing the right answers and finding them to be agreeable. Two plus two equals four, I believe that. It might not necessarily change your life, but I believe that. We're describing this like mental ascent to a list of data points. That's not the picture of belief that the Bible has. Belief and trust mean not just finding it agreeable, but actually being convicted in heart so much that you do something about it. That woman, the woman with the internal hemorrhage, she didn't just believe that Jesus was the Messiah. She walked after him and grabbed him by the fringe. She says, if I, if I step out in faith, something will happen to me. Faith is trust in Jesus. And if we look at faith through this lens of this passage, we would also have to say that this type of belief is not just trusting Jesus when things are good, it's trusting him in the process of the darkness that we find ourselves in. 
It's when we're in that tunnel and we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and we just decide in the deepest part of our heart, I don't feel God right now, I don't hear God, I don't see God, I am plagued with doubts, but this I know, Jesus is real and he's there somewhere. When hope falls asleep, breakthrough might be just around the corner. What if Jairus closed the door before Jesus got there? What if, what if he listened to the naysayers? What if he listened to the devil? Oh, don't bother the teacher anymore. You're too late. What if he shut the door and went fishing? His breakthrough was right around the corner. When hope falls asleep, sometimes your breakthrough might be right around the corner. Jesus steps into a worse situation and puts his glory and power on display by healing his 12-year-old daughter, raises her to life, doing the thing that only Jesus Christ can do. Sometimes your breakthrough might be right around the corner and you're tempted to give up. Sometimes it's not right around the corner, it might be years out and you're tempted to give up. It's hard to see with the eyes of faith when things are not going the way that we thought they would because, truth be told, we haven't always trained ourselves to see with eyes of faith. It doesn't just happen. We've got to train ourselves to see. Faith, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, is the ability to see in situations that are zero visibility. Faith is the ability to see the important things when your life is overwhelmed by urgent things. As Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that you don't see. It is J. Iris saying, I believe, even though this, is, this doesn't make sense at all. It's the woman saying, I can't make sense of it. I don't have any money left. I don't even know if he'll, uh, if he'll accept me or if I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'm just going to reach out and grab his fringe. And it's you going through the darkness and despair of the tunnel, saying, I can't see him, I can't feel him, I can't hear him, but I know he's there. And Jesus answers that call of faith by stepping down into your mess, reaching out and grabbing you by the hand and leading you through the darkness of the tunnel. But sometimes we need to train ourselves to see that way. We need to learn how to see where God is already active in our lives, where we're tempted to think that hope has fallen asleep or that it's dead. To train our spiritual eyes to see how God is working in each of those moments. This is the invitation of Jesus. When everything around you falls apart, learn how to believe. Don't fear. Exchange fear for belief in me. Trust me in the process. And that's like a, that's like a muscle that you've never worked out before. And sometimes it's hard to do it when your whole life falls around in front of you or even when you just get hit with a, an, enough disappointments one after the other. It's hard to just kind of click right into faith and be like, I see you, God. You're doing something awesome. This is why we train ourselves to see God. God who has come near to us in Jesus Christ. That young man, Inigo, which is the most awesome name ever, he was hopeless. His life was crushed 
metaphorically, even as his leg was crushed, literally. And in one fell swoop, by one accidental encounter, he found that his entire life changed chapters for the worst. He was in a convalescent uh, space, which was actually his sister-in-law's home, and Inigo, who was a fan of reading, really loved to read stories about war, specifically brave and handsome knights who got the woman at the end of the war and were made famous. But his sister-in-law didn't have books like that. All she had were books about Jesus. And so he started reading them, and it perturbed him. He cringed a little bit, reading stories about this guy who suffered willingly and who called his disciples to suffer with him, that they would experience the presence of God in suffering. But eventually something started to click. Now, there wasn't this immediate transformation in the same way that a sermon isn't going to immediately transform you overnight. And likewise, Inigo would have these encounters with Jesus, but he would plunge deeper and deeper into despair as he'd realize that his life was a waste, that he sensed a, a feeling of insignificance. And that feeling of insignificance and fear turned into cynicism and darkness and despair until he was eventually even contemplating suicide. And in his life, we see what we so often see when Jesus steps into people's darkness, so that he does not wait for them to step into the light before he ministers to them, but he willingly steps into their mess to offer them a hand. And eventually, in you go, would encounter the living presence of Jesus not in his affluence, not in his dreams being realized, not in the, him getting all the stuff that he wanted, but in trial and despair and disappointment and broken dreams and hopelessness, he would see the Messiah in all of his beauty and form. And he got born again. He would later change his name to Ignatius, Ignatius of Loyola. And he would go on to found a group of believers who would learn how to be with Jesus. And he would call them the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus. The Jesuits were often uh, referred to, sometimes in a denigrating manner, but I love this term, the contemplatives in action. Because Ignatius believed that spending time with Jesus doesn't just stay in here, it flows out into the world in which you live. And so he would train his disciples to be more aware of Jesus' presence, not just in the good times, but also in the bad. One of his core practices was a, a spiritual discipline, hundreds of years old, called the examine. And it is, just like what it sounds, a period of examination. The idea here is that to take Jesus' word seriously, to be aware of his presence, it's sometimes easier to, to be mindful of God's presence in retrospect than right now in the nervousness and the anxiety of the moment. And so he would teach, his, he would teach people to look back on their day to spot where Jesus was active and they didn't even know it. I want to do that with you this morning. Sometimes we'll bring in practices that we can do, not just to do together, but for us to take with us into the week because I don't want us to just, I don't want this always to be a passive reception of information, but participation. And the examine uh, had like six or seven steps to it. I, I, I simplified it to three. 
just to be able to remember it. But it goes like this. It starts with gratitude. It comes from the idea that we see in Philippians that, before, that, uh, that when we come to God in prayer, that we are not to be anxious or fearful, but with thanksgiving, we can make our supplications and requests known to God. And so the idea here is, before we even utter a prayer, let's come to Him in thanksgiving. In other words, let's recalibrate our minds from down here to up here, recalibrating our, recalibrating our hearts to the power and glory of Jesus who can do all things. And so the first part of this practice is simply to look back on your day. If it's noon, look back on your morning. If it's evening, look back on the whole day. If it's this morning, look back on Saturday. And find things in your life that were of a benefit or a blessing and just offer them in thanksgiving to God. This can be as big as a job promotion. It could be as small as like that turkey sandwich with cheese on it was just so good. Thank you, God, for feeding me. Small, simple practices that recalibrate. Then Ignatius moves into the review, the second stage. This is really the heart of the exam, where we recall, we replay the day like a film reel, chronologically, and recall the events of the day from start to finish, noticing where you felt God's presence, where He might have been active, where He might have been doing something, and here's the key, where you might have missed it. And begin to ask your heart in the presence of God, why did I miss it? What was in my heart? What are the obstacles keeping me from seeing that? But because there is now, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, we don't do that practice out of guilt and shame, but grace. And so that's the third stage is grace. Where we ask God for the grace needed for the rest of the day ahead of us, but also to be aware of His presence. Help me, God, to find you tomorrow in the places that I couldn't see you today. You might notice that as you practice something as simple as this, which could take five to ten minutes, do this regularly, you might, you might notice a couple things. One, you start seeing God in dark places. Second thing that will happen is that what you are unable to do, see God in the moment, you start training yourself to do. As you begin to practice and work out the spiritual muscles of faith, you get to this point where you are more aware of God's presence in the moment. Something bad might happen, something discouraging, something disappointing, and all of a sudden you're like, God, what are you doing right now? Can we do this together? Whatever uh, allows you to posture yourself in the presence of God, let's do that. If that's closing your eyes, I want to invite you to close your eyes right now. If it's keeping them open and looking at me pace, then do that too. And I want us to start with gratitude. I'm going to give us a few seconds of silence, and what I want you to do is to replay. Since it's the morning, think of Saturday, and think of those moments in your Saturday that were a blessing to you, that were life-giving, even if it's small, and just offer them up to God in silence in an attitude of gratitude.
with our eyes looking upward and forward at our great king, let's now look back and review. Think of your Saturday, any portion of it, and begin to recall the events of the day from start to finish. And ask yourself, where might God have been reaching out to me? And I I missed it. Now with that moment in your mind, ask, ask God, what, what were you trying to show me? The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so when we review where we missed God, it's not out of a sense of guilt or shame. It's to be free. So here's what I want you to do now. Third stage, grace. Bring that before the Lord and let him take it away from you. And ask God for the grace needed for the rest of Sunday to be aware of his presence, for him to help you find him today in the places that you couldn't see him yesterday. I'm going to ask Robert and Edward to come out as we sing, which is another spiritual practice, confessing truth about Jesus. But as we do, as we prepare our hearts to respond in that way, I want you to think of this last five minutes that you spent looking back on one day, training yourself to see where God has been, where you might have missed Him. This comes from the truth of the gospel that God has broken into our world through Jesus Christ and that he is present. Even though we say things in our prayers like, God, come be with us or come upon us or visit us today, the truth is he's always here, not just in the high points in your life. For as the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit, from your presence? If I go to the, the highest mountain, you are there. But if I go to the lowest valley, to the abyss, you're there too. The Christian believes that even in the darkness, even in the tunnel, even in the despair, Jesus is there. And so we simply learn to train ourselves to see him in those moments. I want to end with a caveat. I want to talk to the people in this room who have not just suffered disappointment. They've not just suffered setbacks. They've not just been a little discouraged. But they have encountered overwhelming loss and tragedy. 
talking about the people in our church who lost loved ones because of things like mudslides. I'm talking about the people in our church who have lost careers or have made single, honest little mistakes that have had huge repercussions. I'm talking about people who have lost touch with their relatives, with their sons and daughters, with their family. To those of us in this body who have dealt with everything from heart attacks and strokes to terminal illness. And for you, it's a little bit different, right? It feels a little bit different because you can't just do an exam like we just did and, and, and see where God is working in cancer. Like our minds aren't just there. It's only darkness. And to you, I want to give you this modicum of comfort that it actually is the same. It just takes longer. But for maybe for some of you, the darkness might last a little bit longer than the rest of us. God is still in the darkness with you. And even though you do the practice, you examine your life, you look for uh, places where he might have showed up and you come up dry, you can still at the end of the day, even if it's your thoughts overwhelming your feelings, say, God will not abandon me. Even though I don't feel the effects of this, he will not leave me or forsake me. And like Job who would say, even though my body is falling apart and decaying and I'm dying, my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on that day. And so even to you as well, I want to extend the invitation. It's not really from me, but from Jesus, who is in the darkness of disappointment, discouragement, suffering, and trial with you, whether you see him or not, reaching out his hand and inviting you to walk through the darkness of the tunnel with you. And for those of you that can't see his hand, our God is gracious, and he puts his hand on your shoulder, and like a good shepherd leads you on. Don't give up. You are loved, you are known, you are seen, and you are cared for, and the darkness will pass. Your hope has just fallen asleep, waiting for someone to come along and breathe life into it. Heavenly Father, we ask you today for healing, physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing, all the types of healing that Jesus our Lord brings to people who are looking. I pray for the person who is reaching out boldly to grab the fringe, as we spoke about last week, but I'm also praying for the person who can't even lift up their hand or their eyes. And I just ask for the loving, lovely, beautiful, encapsulating, transformative presence of the living God to enter into our mess and to do what only you can do comfort us where we need comfort by the God of comfort. And God, in so doing, would you not allow us to waste this chapter that we might find ourselves in, but would you teach us, little by little, how to see you more clearly, not just in times of affluence and happiness, but also in destitution and despair, for there truly is no place that we can go where you are not. May we be mindful and aware of that today, even as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.